in this special episode, I don't know what makes it special other than the fact that uh, I've declared it special. I'm getting too big for my boots. We are joined by Armand Castro. Armand is not only a seasoned veteran at Cheetah Digital and current senior solutions consultant, but he's also a massive Roger Federer fan. And he's going to join Kayla and myself to talk about that evolution of Cheetah Digital from someone who sort of lived the whole journey from bent over ape to Homo erectus. And I actually need to do my research because I can't remember if actually Homo erectus is the whole journey of that bent over no. ape to stood up man. No, uh, you're halfway there, I think. You're going to talk to us about what you've seen in terms of changes that you've lived through and the sort of the work and the clients you've had to sort of take the, this, these changes on from sort of your early days in the email world right through to today where we've got a whole plethora of glorious items. So let's, let's go back to the beginning, the, the primeval soup. My start in the email game was, uh, I guess, by happenstance. Me noticing in a job of mine that their emails sucked. It was just spammy, all text, words upon words upon words, nothing clickable. It was the most horrendous email you can possibly imagine. Even the Prince of Nigeria would probably be like, ah, I'm deleting this. I went as a temp, as a like little 22-year-old temp, told them, hey, you got to fix this. This isn't great. And then they gave me the responsibility. And uh, the power of youth, the, the brazen power of youth. Right. So and that's when I just started noticing, oh, I can use HTML. Oh, you can target on lists and then send out to these people and that pe those people. Right. So little, little tidbits that slowly grew into, oh, I can turn this into a career. And at that point, I went to a client of ours. And from there, I went into Cheetahmail. So that's really the kind of initial arc of my entry into email marketing. So it was mm. a very interesting start where didn't know it was even a thing, saw how much you could do with it, got a new job because of it, and then got drawn into Cheetahmail on the, uh, I guess, more agency services side. The, the key there was Cheetahmail. You yes. joined when it was Cheetahmail, which... Um, for myself, um, although I'm aware of all of our history, that's for me, that's, it feels like the foundations of everything. That's the, I would actually even, uh, classify it more specifically. I would, I joined during one of the beginnings, right? Cause the true beginning was back in 1998. I was in high school, mm -hmm. <laughs> so couldn't possibly have joined then. Uh, but back Unless in, we broke major child labor laws. When I joined, uh, in 2011, uh, that was kind of the nascent point where Experian was really managing Cheetahmail and Cheetahmail was uh, the premier product. So mm -hmm. that was really focusing and excelling uh, batch and blast, easy segmentation, list-based, like sending. So it, it, we were a powerhouse when it came to that. Uh, and I understood it based on just the culture within, within the company where you know, we had all these amazing brands, uh, all these really smart people uh, working together with them and learning about the industry. But yeah, it was really exciting for someone uh, so young uh, as myself or in Kayla's case, so old as 24, right? What was the world like at that moment in email marketing? Obviously people were slowly getting uh, the value of email marketing. So, you know, right off, a lot of people were using just batch and blast, the most basic of basic approaches, right? You just target your entire list and you fire away. Here's the offer for the day. 
you know, and then we tended to give them maybe some specific paths to take. Maybe you can use dynamic content. Really, these things were revolutionary concepts at the time. Like, you can do dynamic content, cool. You can do better personalization. You can segment down to, you know, specific groups. Those were like, oh, very cool. We can start really compartmentalizing certain types of folks, right? So a lot of different clients were at different levels of maturity, but it was overall the entire landscape in terms of the clients uh, I saw, uh, I oversaw or worked uh, with. Um, there was just a lot of really early stage understanding of how much more, you, what, what more you can get out of email marketing, even on that kind of just list-based approach. For all of our young 19-year-old listeners like myself, thank you. Wow, you look like <laughs> Benjamin Button. You've, you've, you've decreased in five years on this actual call. By the end of it, you'll just be a, a sparkle in your parents' eyes. It was Kayla's birthday this week, hence all these, um, these age jokes. Looking at when you entered in the email space versus today, what were some of the nuances? It's just way more developed now, right? People understand how to approach it a lot better. There's still going to be like maybe smaller folks that are a little bit simplified in their approach, but it's not like the larger corporations are doing batch and blast much anymore, right? So the focus is more on maybe understanding how, you know, segments of people react to these kinds of offers, understanding a little bit more of the statistics and how it plays out, right? Understanding analytics quite a bit more and how to apply it to strategies, right? So it's, it's a lot more informed in terms of an approach um, because it's at this point understood that uh, a cudgel isn't the approach here. You've got to go with a little bit of uh, precision. Because what we're going to do next, we're going we're to jump through time. I've already did some uh, Back to the Future references in the last episode, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add some more here because it's three films and I've only done one so far, so that's not a problem. All you have to do is drive the time vehicle directly toward that screen, accelerating 88 miles an hour. Wait a minute, Doc. If I drive straight towards the screen, I'm going to crash into those Indians. Marty, you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. You'll instantly be transported to 1885, and those Indians won't even be there. Right. In my mind, that's probably a pretty good, like, initial understanding of just how it was a little wild, wild west, a little easier to uh, understand how things work. It's just simple, list-based. We discussed a little bit before what were two moments that really sort of changed the, the game from your own perspective. And that's why we wanted your, your version of how the evolution of all this worked. Yeah. And the first one we discussed is basically the move from flat file to a relational database, which mm -hmm. is a lovely sentence. And every time I say it, I feel <laughs> smarter. Could you take, talk a little bit more about that moment where we were, we had, yeah, these almost these list based approach to suddenly ripping up and going a completely different way? Absolutely. So again, in, in terms of context, so I, I think it's barely a, fairly understood at this point that at the time I was really focusing on actually building these campaigns, right? Actually building these segments, actually building these filters. So I had day-to-day -day, um, experience in supporting these clients of ours in retail, travel, uh, all these different verticals, right? So I was constantly in the weeds, right? Working on these pieces. And around, I think 2011, 2012, um, one of my clients was uh, decided, had decided, 
uh, to move to our new product at the time, uh, Marketing Suite, uh, which we now know as Cheetah Messaging. <clears throat> and being that I, uh, as you could tell from my initial foray into email marketing period, uh, like taking on the unknown, I decided I'd, I'd want to learn a lot about this new thing. And one of those key facets uh, in terms of the change was relational data, right? So relational data as a concept has existed, right? So it's just, you know, rather than a single flat file table, you have multiple tables and established relationships between each uh, in terms of uh, uh, primary keys and, you know, uh, keys across the tables, right? So simple, but being able to access it and build logic around it within email marketing uh, really kind of blew my mind that I didn't have to, you know, have someone run a SQL query uh, to produce a file that I can load onto a flat database. That used to be the process, right? So if I wanted to look for someone who, or people who bought $50 worth of stuff in the last seven days, if that data isn't already pre-written into the flat file, we need to talk to you know, uh, the client for their CRM, probably come up with a SQL query, they'll spit out a list, and then we'll load that, and then we'll process it. Now I can use it to target. And that was just the accepted norm, right? So, but now, because this data is actually coursing through, I'm getting transactions that I made or Kayla made or you made coursing through and relating to me, I can aggregate within the tool itself. And that was game changing for me because then when my uh, you know, clients would be like, hey, can we change this and target you know, these folks instead? You know, instead of $50, can I make it $70? Because I'm not getting uh, the right number. I can do it on the fly rather than having to ask someone to code it, wait a day, load it. That, that was just a game-changing moment. Empowering marketers and digital marketers to do more with the, with the tools that they can access. That's our whole mantra, really. We're, we're, we want to empower them so they can do more and, and, and be better at their jobs. So this, this moment that you're sort of describing here is even if it's someone who was at, uh, like yourself who was uh, almost acting on their behalf, it was opening up a, lot, a world of options and possibilities Something where previously maybe you would be limited in what you could suggest to do because you know that there's underlying work that would need to be done, where now I could be a little bit more adventurous as to who I can target in terms of segmentation because it's easy to do, right? The easier it was for me to provide these uh, you know, segments or these filters to, to my client, uh, the more strategic we could get about how to target, right? So if I understood that you know, the frequency of purchase of a specific, um, you know, fragrance item on a given year is maybe one or two, then maybe I can target categories, frequency, or even specific SKUs, right, in terms of, you know, um, hitting them with, hey, time to buy a new bottle, right? So easy things like that, where previously it would have been a bit of an IT exercise, but now I can just make it a, a filter logic exercise. Uh, just really empowered myself and my clients uh, to be able to do more. And, and it made me look good, you know? <laughs> so that's, you got to like that. That's all we want. This technology makes us look good. That's why we like filters. Exactly. So we can, <laughs> so we can blur ourselves into oblivion. So 
with how easy things are now that we don't have to depend so much on SQL, I mean, can you think back and think of like, what is the most impactful yet easy requests that you've received in terms of data filtering for targeting? So, well, I, I wouldn't say this is the simplest one, but I thought uh, it was something that would have been challenging for me to do uh, back in the flat file days would be those uh, uh, product specific abandoned cart with some exclusions based on maybe what they purchased already, right? So these are logical pieces where I decide that they, uh, through this abandoned file that came through, they looked at or they added XYZ product. But then since I know that they already bought Z product, I can exclude that because of the filter. So that would have been impressively tough for me to, you know, apply that logic or maybe have a SQL query go back to their transaction uh, folks and help me understand who bought what and then cross-reference that onto the abandoned file. So you can imagine how much like cross-referencing you'd have to do to establish, okay, now this is what needs to be shown in terms of products. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm like thinking about all the different abandoned carts I receive where like I may have purchased something that was similar to it, like a, just a different version or a different mm -hmm. model, but I'm so, still getting this like, why aren't you buying this? Really? So you can establish like category or SKU, right? So imagine if I, and, and this is an actual exclusion set I had in a filter, which were like, if they already made a purchase of this category, I would exclude those products from being visualized. Right, so I can actually apply that logic in a filter that would look at that block of data and prevent uh, that from ever showing up. So, and it actually made it so easy that maybe my client didn't realize how much harder it used to be. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah. it was pretty funny that, you know, uh, we sometimes now take it for granted that it's just so much easier uh, for me to do. The amount of revenue that change would have led to um as tiger king is the is the current episode of choice for everyone at the minute if i'm there browsing my illegal or big cat shopping shopping channel and i've put a cheetah a lion and a panther in my cage and my shopping cart my shopping, cage, shopping cart, cage and i've decided that actually three of those is a bit too many for my zoo my illegal sub subterranean zoo right now i'm just going to buy the panther a week later or a, an appropriate time later, someone from the illegal cat sell shop who will be shut down eventually by some sort of a United Nations organization. They've sent me the right triggered email, which has basically said, uh, are you sure you're not tempted by this offer we now have on uh, cheetahs or lions? That will then lead to the, the tipping point for me to make that purchase that I abandoned. We're moving again away from mass marketing, mass mailing, just spamming people on the chance that you hit, get the right moment to making informed decisions and actioning that data to, to lead to a, co a consequence that we, we want, we're after in this case, mm -hmm. finishing that purchasing cycle. And, and sometimes it's what the customer wants too. Like I might've forgotten that I wanted that thing. Right. And, and sometimes yeah. I actually do want to be reminded. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily going to be a cheetah in my uh, cage cart, but uh, 
you get I think you get the not tiger in your tank. too bad it's too bad so we we hop to our next uh, our second moment of inspiration and a ha i guess you could call it an aha moment aha! a crystallization of the future and and the direction cheetah was going in i like to read harry potter what are we saying for this next moment i'm on it's the we sort of set up by saying the first one was this move from flat file to relational databases. Mm-hmm. That then opened up not just a whole world of of messaging and the way that we could, mm-hmm. we could communicate to, as well, really. to yeah to clients cross channel. It spiraled into what we've currently got: customer engagement suites. This uh, this set of softwares that, on the face of it, could look separate, but they're really not because they can all be mm-hmm. joined together. And they are all uh, uh, united by the central piece, the engagement data platform. Exactly. Which ties na- nicely back to the way that we handle and process data now. And we have these different sets of our cross-channel messaging, we have our loyalty suite, and we have experiences. But how do we get there? How did that happen from this moment of uh, relational database yeah. to having a, 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 a suite of tools that really, really are powerful for any digital marketer to make the difference in their organization. Obviously, it's always been the case that uh, when change occurs, there's always going to be a little bit of like feeling through what's going on. How is this going to work? You know, that, that idea of uncertainty a little bit in the face of change, right? So at the time, obviously, we all gotten to, we've had gotten to a point where we were very comfortable with uh, you know, uh, the relational tables, the uh, cross-channel messaging capabilities of just marketing suite or cheetah messaging. But the core idea of it in terms of what it was driving to was really trying to promote a level of loyalty with your customers, right? You're trying to build a relationship through those communications. And really, it serves towards customer loyalty. If you're providing me the right kind of targeted experience because you're using my data correctly, I'm going to respond because you're, you know, giving me the right offers and the right things that I want to see. And that initial uh, acquisition of a, a loyalty solution was at first like, all right, that seems like an entire other business to us. But in hindsight, when you take a step back, it's really just another uh, more focused mechanic that's driving again towards loyalty. It's just, it's more blatant in terms of what it does. It's really loyalty, quote unquote, focused. But everything we did, even back in the cheetah mail days, was to try to create a level of customer loyalty because engagement, re-engagement, purchasing and repurchasing and advocating for a brand is loyalty, right? Simply put. So, that's when you know it was beginning to dawn on me. Okay, that was a logical move. You know, we we got into loyalty, and and that's gonna help us really have these mechanics that really are in support of and really work well together with uh, what channel messaging can do, right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, it was really understanding that 
if we had all of that data in a central core, like all the you know beginnings of a rumblings of CDP, because that's what we really did. We we really had with you know uh, with the relational tables, right? Easy access to better data and better activities in one place to activate across channels. But if you applied it to a broader scale, if we looked at you know all that uh, you know, advanced and more modern architecture that's powering uh, loyalty at the time and now, can we use that to be the engine, the data engine that really drives you know, cross-channel messaging and loyalty? And those initial thoughts were like, oh, okay, that, that could be an approach if you have like this modern architecture uh, that you know, the likes of you know, Uber, all of them that are using uh, today, if we use that kind of a data architecture to uh, power our messaging and loyalty, that would be pretty cool. Um, but obviously, earlier on, it was a bit more conceptual, right? So it was still kind of crystallizing into, into shape. Uh, and then you bring in, uh, what was this last year, experiences. And then again, I'm like, all right, they bring more data in, I guess that yeah, absolutely made sense, right? So, but where does it all fit? And then once that first time that uh, we kind of saw that EDP nucleus uh, with the uh, kind of the different spokes of experiences, loyalty and messaging, small tangent, but that is actually a weird, very weird fact about me. I was a pre-med bio major. So, and, and he chucked it all away. Yeah, he chucked it all away for, for, for this. What a I'm a philosophy major, so, you know, we've all made some questionable life choices. I mean, good life choices. But if you think about it, it, it a lot of science, in terms of a scientific approach, does apply to what yeah, we absolutely. do. Right? So it's all about hypothesizing whether if you do this, will it yield this? And then you come up with a game plan. You use the data, right? So it's a matter of what I have at my disposal to be able to do it. Yep. And what we have at our disposal today is, is very robust in, in terms of what I can do. And I find myself a lot more excited as we you know, keep making a lot of this progress in, in terms of beefing up our product, right? Because again, coming back to kind of that first time I saw the visualization of, you know, experiences allowing you to better collect, better acquire, and better constantly understand your customers. Messaging allowing you, uh, again, with the same data core, a means to you know, interact or at least talk to uh, your customers. Loyalty mechanics uh, as a means to you know, reward or, or you know, provide a, an infrastructure to uh, in, encourage types of behaviors. Uh, that emotional loyalty. loyalty, man. Right, so go get the feels. That that's what we want, isn't it? Having that, yeah, it's exactly like that's when it really started clicking. That this is really an evolution from when we were just looking at uh, how easy it was to access, uh, you know, relational data in, in the marketing suite. To now, I'm actually able to activate that data across messaging, leverage it within loyalty, and improve upon it. Constantly be able to develop that data about the likes of you, the likes of me with experiences. Because I figured experiences might initially be an easy way to acquire, 
but it's a constant acquisition. Yes, I, I completely agree. It's the re-engagement and the constant acquisition is the, 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 the second pillar of what makes it so powerful. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the acquisition yeah. data, it helps. But it's, it's that re-engagement piece because we, what are we all? We are all changing this whole tedious mm -hmm. subject matter of a theme that I applied to our podcast today was, was evolution, which is, of course, change over time. That applies to our own lives and the customers' lives. We're going from um, being single and ready to mingle in a New York flat to uh, married with kids mm -hmm. in, in the or... blink of an eye. And the chances are many of the brands you're using then will be still the same brands you'll be with mm -hmm. further down the line. The, just, the difference is the consumer habits, what you'll need from mm -hmm. and what you expect from the, the, the way that a brand talks to you. Because if it really knows you, and we're trying, we're trying to preach brands having relationships with exactly. their customers, then it needs to be a personalized relationship. It needs to have an element of understanding. Yeah. Um, and of course, we're all changing. So this, going back to experiences and that re-engagement, it helps you, along with loyalty, understand the journey that people are on. It, it, it's the difference between assuming some possibility to being certain about it, right? Because I asked. Right. So it's like looking outside and seeing it's sunny, assuming it's warm, but it's not because it's winter. <laughs> right. So there's certain things where you'd rather actually obtain the facts, right. Either by asking or by checking yep. with the likes of a, a customer uh, and understanding their actual current state. You know, it's not always just about, you know, a pattern of behavior. That's, that's definitely always going to be uh, a valuable aspect of the data. But if you, with certainty, know that this is now their current state because they said so, uh, that holds uh, supreme value over assumption. Right off the bat, so valuable about what we've done uh, in terms of unifying this uh, CES, right, the Customer Engagement Suite, and actually having that data activated across those different solutions um, it really is lending itself to building a relationship in a much better sense of the word uh, with your customers, right? Because what is a relationship if not discourse, right? So it's not a one-way street if it's a relationship. So it has to be two ways, right? So it's not always just about here's five bucks, here's five bucks, here's 15%. It has to be, hey, are you interested in this? Do you want to, you know, you expressed this before can i be sure right that's all you're doing and is is kind of making uh, a real relationship with your your customers and reacting to it appropriately but there's always going to be cases where you notice a pattern of behavior and then you can make assumptions from that that doesn't take that away right in a relationship that exists too so i think it's just Good. logical in terms of what we're doing kayla you have you normally have uh, something to spring on people don't you I do. I do. Um, so everyone has their soapbox when they're super passionate about a subject. Roger Federer would be one of those things that uh, I can talk for hours about considering I've liked and watched tennis with my mom since I was maybe like six, seven years old. And, and this is all the way in the Philippines. So it's like little grainy videos of Pete Sampras 
uh, back when I was a little kid and Andre Agassi and uh, the only Asian that I watched, Michael Chang. So I got excited by that. <laughs> uh, and then when I first moved to the U.S. in uh, 98, 99, seeing the up and comers slowly, you know, shift from Pete Sampras uh, and then watching this kid at the time in around 2000, 2001, I think, um, beat Pete Sampras at Wimbledon. And, changing in the guard moment. I and that well. blew my mind because I was such a huge Pete Sampras fan. And this little, like, pimply-faced Swiss guy beat him, like, pretty handily, too. It wasn't, like, uh, too tight. Yeah. The guy was just really good. I was like, holy crap, who is this kid? <laughs> so I, I started, like, actually following this, this guy's career back in 01, and I was just blown away by how good he was. Um, and have been very much of a passionate fan of his since then. Um, I've watched him in quite a few tournaments, including one in Switzerland, because that's where my sister lives. The fourth round of the men's singles at Wimbledon in 2001 pitted two of the greatest exponents of the game against each other in what would be their only competitive match. At 29 years of age, America's Pete Sampras was the number one seed and aiming to become the first man ever to win eight Wimbledon singles titles. Roger Federer was only 19 and seeded 15th. The Swiss was a former junior Wimbledon champion with huge potential, but it was his first appearance in the fourth round and his first appearance on centre court. On paper, it was difficult to see how he could put a stop to Sampras's 31-match winning streak.